Mineshaft, a statue in an empty lake, unusual funeral rites in a starving community. Find this and more in Caitlin Marceau's newest collection of short horror from Ghost Orchid Press. Do you dare to venture into a blackness absolute? Available wherever books are sold. The curator will see you now. Are you looking for conversations with some of the hottest names in horror today, like Eric LaRocca, Haley Piper, Clay McLeod Chapman, Laurel Hightower, Jamie Flanagan, and Allie Wilkes, along with indie horror superstars like Brianna Morgan and Joe Coach? Then you should tune in to Terrifying Tones of Terror with your host, the curator of horror, Chance Forshee, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, this is author Jeff Strand, and I cannot wait to see you at Horror on Main. Remember, attendance is mandatory. Don't make me hunt you down. Horror on Main, a new weekend convention for the horror community. We explore all the shadows within horror entertainment. From idea to product, there are many people behind the scenes, and we're bringing them to you, as well as contests, movies, panels, podcasters, and much, much more. We've been going to conventions for over 20 years and are changing up the little things to make the big picture amazing. Join us Memorial Day weekend 2023 in Hunt Valley, Maryland. Come to the block party and meet your new neighbors. See HorrorOnMain.com for details. Welcome to Dead Headspace. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my friend, Brennan LaFaro. Say hello, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And my other friend, Candace Nola. Say hello, Candace. Hello. We're joined tonight by Grady Hendricks. Say hello, Grady. Hello. How's it going? Very good, sir. And Erica Tewer. Say hello, Erica. Hello. And uh, just a little brief thing here before we get started uh we're doing a giveaway for this episode is uh caitlin marceau's a blackness absolute through ghost orchard press and this is where we talk things out from dark lit press um how you can get on that is uh check out our twitter when this episode comes out that'll be march 13th you'll have only a few days all right, so in this episode, we're going to be talking to Grady and Erica. We're going to be talking about old horror, new horror, but I am going to actually pass it off to Brennan to uh, introduce them. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Grady, Erica, uh, glad to have you both back. Uh, we were so honored to have you guys not that long ago, actually. So it's 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 cool because we always tell people, hey, you know, we'd love to have you back on. And with both of you, we kind of hit that nail on the head just oh so quickly. Uh, because, well, we miss, we would have missed you otherwise. So we're kind of putting this together to just talk a little bit about what everybody seems to be talking about all the time now is just the current state of horror. Now, it seems like for the most part, you know, you keep hearing people say, we are living in a golden age of horror. So what I want to kind of start off with was what, what does that mean to both of you? Erica, let's start with you. Oh, I feel like you should start with Grady since he kind of wrote a book. 
<laughs> so I'm like, thanks. Um, yeah, um, but yeah, and it, and I have to say, by the way, it's such an honor um, to be on with you, Grady, because my oh. my entire joke for every podcast is like when people are like, who are you reading? And I'm like, well, you know, of course, Sylvie Moreno, and of course, my indigenous brother from another uh, mother, Stephen Graham Jones. But if Grady Hendrix would just produce a book, like every few months, I would just read him until one of us was dead. So very much an honor. No, no, I appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah. And thanks for making um, me feel not productive. Oh, no. <laughs> every few oh, months. Yeah, I know. God, I well, that's the thing. If you could just somehow like a Grady machine generate them, right? So, you know. Um, yeah, you know, I, I have to say, I think, for me, I, when I was a kid, right, I loved horror and I loved science fiction. And I loved fantasy and I got to PhD school and <clears throat> they ironed it out of me. And I've said this many, many times before. Um, but in some ways, like my trajectory kind of mirrors horror's trajectory because I was like a Stephen King kid and I read anything with ghosts, uh, goblins, anything that was scary. I wasn't as into the slasher, but, you know, I, I still liked them. Um and as, you know, as that was like the sort of the 80s and the 90s, right, where, and you can ask Sylvia Moreno Garcia about this, you know, she also is as a font of information. Um, you know, they were this heyday for people like Stephen King. And then it sort of kind of peters out a bit and, you know, horror is out of fashion and then thriller becomes the, the replacement, if you will. It seems like it's the last five-ish years in which you're seeing horror, the horror renaissance. And I actually feel really excited to be a part of that. Because like I've said many times before, it's it kind of brings me back to my nerve roots. So I feel like you're seeing an extreme diversity of voices, just of every kind, not just demographically, but aesthetically. And I just, I love seeing that, so. Yeah, you know, um, I don't, I mean, a renaissance, yeah, I, I don't know. I always feel like it's, um, it, it's all so coincidental and, and um, you know, I feel like after 2001, the early 2000s, I mean, I remember sort of 2000 to 2010, that was when Barnes and Noble got rid of their horror sections. Um, and, and there really wasn't a ton. There were, but, but at the same time, you had this really growing uh, zombie thing. I mean, you had The Walking Dead in comics um, and you had uh, 28 Days Later and, and just sort of felt like endless zombie movies. And, and that was sort of when what got called uh, the, the torture porn move, moment came in movies, you know, with Hostel and movies, Saw, things like that. Um, <clears throat> but with books, not so much. I mean, I think the early 2000s, like Brian Keene was writing then and Sarah Langan, who was writing and then wasn't and, and is again. Um, but you didn't have a ton of... of high profile authors. I mean, Stephen King was still doing what he does. Uh, he doesn't seem to quit, but Clyde Barker was largely quiet. Um, and so, yeah. So is it a Renaissance or is it just, you know, people aged? I, I don't know. Um, but you know, I, it's interesting to me that like Paul Tremblay and Stephen Graham Jones, um, both started, really publishing in bigger presses and books that got more attention in the 2010s, you know, 2014 around then. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I guess we're in a Renaissance. It, there's certainly a lot more horror and definitely I, I pitched a book to my publisher about a year and a half ago. Uh, and they said, yeah, that sounds more like a thriller. We hired you to write horror. So that's what you're going to write. We're not going to do that. 
um, which was weird to me because I used to think there was so much um, that thrillers were sort of the um, the the more appealing version of horror or the more like mainstream friendly version of horror. Uh, Silence of the Lambs was sold as a thriller, not horror. Um, but yeah, I mean, it definitely seems to be a moment when horror is not a dirty word and is definitely something everyone's going after. Although what I see happening less in books and more in film is people want to, um, they want to be part of the conversation, but they don't necessarily want to make the movie that gets them into the conversation. They want to make the movie that generates the op-ed pieces that Get Out did, but they don't want to make Get Out. Um, you know, it's it's a lot of people who don't really feel horror or love horror or feel comfort with it they want the sassy attention it gets. Um, and so they sort of want to jump to the finish line rather than doing the work to get there, which I think is interesting that horror has suddenly been this place where like, we're discussing gender, we're discussing race. I'm like, mm, the the horror I knew in the seventies and eighties, was mostly about Nazi leprechauns. Uh, like, you know, like, like there wasn't a lot of deep thought go i mean there was deep thought but you know what i mean it's like now it's sort of like suddenly um dinner uh dinner party conversation um whereas it wasn't before and and i i feel like in a weird way i think in books paul and uh steven are both the people who are sort of the the literature writers right i mean they've gotten a lot of attention for for making horror more literary um I feel like in film, it's almost 100% Jordan Peele. <laughs> like, like Get Out, which is sort of the movie where like everyone in the wake of that wants to be having that conversation and those deep thoughts. To me, it sounds like it's about um, like anything in life. There's a lot of wishes from a lot of people, but, uh, you know, doing the thing that isn't like anything else or what we all want to maybe become it comes with a lot of ugliness meaning and if you guys any of you want to jump in go ahead but from the little that i've experienced it comes with jealousy from friends or from people you thought were friends it comes from random people that say terrible things about you because you're doing something different and um maybe that's that's also why there's so few people that do it because to become successful, you got to go through a lot of shit that most people just don't want to put up with. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to end it on that. That sounded good. Does anyone want to jump in for, on that? No, I, I, but, but I mean, I feel like a lot, there are a lot of people doing really different stuff in horror books. I mean, you know, uh, Gabino's book, uh, Erica's books, like, um, uh, uh, um, Oh God. Uh, Sylvia's books. I mean, none of them could be mistaken for each other. Everyone's doing really distinctive stuff. Um, I feel like horror writing and books accommodates a lot of like weirdness and experimentation and stuff all across the map. Uh, I, I feel like it's in movies. It's a little bit more like um, people see the prestige and they want to jump in, but they don't maybe particularly love horror. But in books, I feel like everyone's a horror nerd who's writing a book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, Candice, I'm actually interested to hear what your thoughts are on it. Um, I um, actually have a lot, but 
I don't want to like derail anything, but I feel like a lot the of rail away. <laughs> I I feel like a lot of what's happening in the movies right now and some of the things that people are writing, there's a lot of the social commentary right now about the state of the world. I feel like everyone wants to send a message. They want to show what they stand for who they're part of, who they're allied with, that they stand for this, they stand for that. This is wrong with the world, or this is wrong with the world, and this is wrong with my part of the world. And I do think there are, there is a time and a place for all of those conversations to take place. They are important. There are big issues happening in the world right now that need to be addressed. But I feel like horror has traditionally been in an escape for those who watch it and read it. It's a way for them to take another look at the world aside from the horror that's staring them in the face right outside. It's a different perspective on a lot of it. And while you can still have those issues to a point within it, I just think right now maybe there's just a lot of overlap into our escapism rather than this is our escape and this is the reality over here. I don't know. I just think there's a time and there's a place and right now it seems to be heavily saturated with the messages and the stances and the issues. And maybe it doesn't always quite need to be in everything, everywhere, all the time. Sometimes you just need an escape. You just want to laugh. You want to see something that is absurd or outlandish or just downright a jump scare after jump scare after jump scare to kind of take you out of that place in your head get you out of the news feed and out of the social world and out of all of that and just let you breathe for a little bit and kind of remember what it feels like to have fun, laugh a little bit, sort of escape that and unwind. So I don't know. It's just my, my take. I like it. Brennan, uh, go ahead, buddy. I, I, I think that there's a lot in there and, um, a lot in there I agree with in that kind of escapism. Um, you know, Grady, one thing you said that kind of stuck out to me was the fact that there are a lot of people who are almost, uh, forgive me if I'm misparaphrasing you, but almost kind of using horror as a vehicle to, um, you know, almost get that attention to, to try and make something like a get out, but ne- not necessarily uh, devoted lifelong horror fans. Um, and it's because horror can be such a good gateway to kind of say all those things and get those social messages across and whatnot. But at the same time, I mean, whether or not you want to term what we're in right now, a golden age or a renaissance or whatever, uh, if we, if we kind of look at it, like, when does this go back to, when does this start? 
I mean, it's it's five, it's six years, it's oh, right around 2016. And I'm trying to remember if there was something around 2016 that kind of catapulted the country into <laughs> this like spiral yeah. of darkness. And you know, I think that whether or not we realize it, um, there is that necessary escapism because yeah, life is always life. Life is hard. Life is tough. Life is there's always going to be challenges, but. It certainly seems like in the last, you know, six or so years, we've really uh, taken that upon ourselves as a challenge. Um, and and I do think that, you know, the the kinds of um, oh, I, I hate to even throw out an example because I don't want to sound like I'm diminishing their work, but like a uh, Robert McCammon or even like you know certain King, which is you know you read it for its entertainment value. And even if there are deeper messages in there, you can just read it for its entertainment value. Um, it feels like a lot of times we're kind of getting away from that. Uh, and that's where I'm going to end my lengthy verbal diarrhea. <laughs> I do like a lot of like, you know, if you look at earlier books, right. And even if they're kind of ridiculous and wonderful and throw away and they're about Nazi leprechauns, uh, you know, there's going to be, and some, right. I, I'm, I'm, I'm the uh, academic now, but, um, but there's always going to be somebody like me who's going to come in and be like, but that represents, you know, so-and-so during such and such period of time. And there's probably some absolute truth to that. Or there's some truth to that. But I think the thing that I always want to say is the same thing I said when I was 19, which is, you know, it's good, a Twinkie. And you know, it's also good, which is creme brulee. But you know, it's also really, really good, like a creme brulee Twinkie. And so in the end, Ugh. I think there are books like Grady's um, that that absolutely compel me, draw me along, <clears throat> entertain me, make me laugh, give me a little bit of a, Ugh, you know. Um, but still, the for example, in um, the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, the rage I felt at the men in that book. Oh, my God, it was visceral and it was brilliant. And you did it without making it um, didactic in any way or pedantic in any way, it was so natural. And I think that's why it was so effective. And so I think a book can at least try, right, to do both of the things. And yet, you know, I, I yeah. think I remember reading something about a, you know, a lady who sees ghosts in, Vic in the Victorian era, and it was pretty without any substance, but it was fun. So, you know. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I'm feeling, you know, I'm being a little cynical about movies right now because they still think horror books, man. Like, you're only doing it because you want to be. No one's like, here's a lot of money in writing books. Spend <laughs> a year of your life to, you know. But So everyone, I feel like writing books, I got a lot of love for. Um, I'm feeling a little cynical about the movie stuff. Uh, that might just be the mood I'm in. Um, because also, I got to say, you know, in a two-year period, we've got what? Uh, the Adult Swim Yule Log, which I thought was my favorite movie of last year. Um, Skinamarink outwaters i mean you know there's so much variety and so there's so many people doing small movies that are just insane um malignant from a couple of years ago to think that malignant outwaters skinnamarink and yule log all came out in the same like three-year period like that's bonkers so i mean there's a lot of great stuff out there i might just be being a grump well if i remember correctly though grady i of course you were on talking scared so i sped to that one i'm like listen to that one and you're like fully immersed and you always have been to some degree or another, but you're really in the TV and the movie world right now. And yeah. that won't break anyone's 
solar. But <laughs> I will say if it's any consolation, so will academia. Um, so Fair. You know, at least theoretically, at some point, you might make more money and you can at least do it for 12 weeks and get out. <laughs> right, exactly. And also, you know, I mean, part of it's too, horror is really strong right now. You know, it is uh, in, in movies and TV, horror really does really well. And um, so everyone wants to try to be doing it. So a lot of people whose square peg doesn't fit the round hole, this metaphor is getting super awkward, um, are, are trying to make the peg fit the hole. And it's not always a good fit. You know, that's what's funny about it, though. It's like I always I, I completely see what you're saying. And yet, you know, there's still this reticence, even though there's been some push right with Jordan Peele. Like not that I mean, this is completely selfish, but my book definitely hasn't been optioned yet. And I think it's so, I think it's pretty easily doable mm -hmm. in that regard. So, you know, I think the problem becomes that Hollywood, like anything, like any machine kind of wants the same thing. And so that's why square peg round hole. Yeah. And if they would just put out something that's, you know, good, they would probably right. find these audience. Yeah. Well, and it reminds me a little bit of, um, I think around 2010, when there was that big YA boom. Uh, you know, Harry Potter was riding high. And I know lots of people whose agents were like, do you want to do some YA? Like people who had no interest in writing YA, people who really, you know, that just wasn't their jam. But their agents realized that, you know, you could, I could get you a really good advance to do some YA because everyone's looking for the next Divergence or Harry Potter or Hunger Games. Um, and so, yeah, you know, money corrupts. I hate capitalism. I want to I want to jump to how to sell a haunted house because that came over before when we had you on uh, it was months before it came out now hmm. you're on um, not even a month and a half after it's been on I know you've talked about it to death but um, I want to just ask point blank how's the reception to this book been in respect to other books I know it's very early on like early on into yeah. the release but have you noticed is there is there maybe a different feeling you have from fans well, or yourself? There's two things. And one is that um, I really was going to – I was prepared to write this book off, and so was my editor. Um, it took me a long time to land it. I had to bump the pub date by six months because I just wasn't getting the book right. And my editor and I both felt like this is too weird. It's too odd. It's too personal. You know what? we will do okay. We're proud of the book. Both of us were like, we're proud of the book, but eh, this just is not going to go well. And that's fine. We got another book on the contract. We'll, we'll do better next time. And so when people really went for it, I mean, it's, it's done really well. Um, you know, that was freaky, uh, and, and really gratifying, but very freaky. Um, and the other thing is I just got back from doing about a solid, three week book tour doing a lot of cities and a lot of, and going out. And um, it's been great because it's the first time I've done sort of a sustained bunch of cities in a row since the pandemic. And um, man, people are intense. Uh, it's uh, people have gotten a little more intense since the pandemic. And I think part of it is people are so psyched to be out doing something. Um, you know, it's like, and it's been great. But it's been it's been a little exhausting, but it's been great. Uh, but so, yeah, I think people are a little more excited right now. And especially 
I can't tell you the number of people who've said to me in an event, I had stopped reading and I started reading during the pandemic again. Uh, and they would just start reeling out authors that they'd been reading, you know, like during, and like, and so I think the pandemic really, and I can't tell you the number of independent, I've, every single independent bookstore I've gone to is doing gangbusters. And all of them say, you know, and listen, there's plenty that are out of business. I wasn't going to the ones that went out of business, but the ones that survived are like, we're doing better than we've ever done. Mm-hmm. And they account- attribute that to two factors. One is that they feel like people really, during the pandemic, started to value their local businesses and want to support them. Um, and the other is all of them uh, say that going genre is what's selling for them and that uh, horror and romance are the two big categories that are going great for them. There was one bookstore that I was talking to uh, that in 2019, when they opened, romance was a shelf. It was a shelf about this big. And now it is, you know, a whole rack front and back, you know, about nine times that big. And they're like, we can't keep it in stock. So genre, horror and romance in particular, and people supporting their local business, but independent bookstores are doing great. And people seem to have rekindled reading and then going out to do a group thing, like an author event where you're there with your friends, you know, and all this, you're in a bookstore. I mean, it's, it's, it's like a freaking book orgy out there. So I want to, I want to ask everyone a question. I'll go in the order of Grady, Erica, if Candace wants to jump in and then if Brendan wants to jump in. Um, and then we'll, I want to go back to how to sell a haunted house. I want to talk about that a little bit. No spoilers, but for whoever wants to jump in, because I fucking love that book. Oh, Thank God it, it went through, man. Seriously, because that that is right up there for me with like Burnt Offerings or Rosemary's Baby. Seriously, it's so good. Um, Thank you. And The Exorcist, actually. How did I forget that? That's the three. That's the Holy Trinity. Um, <laughs> but you're talking about how people... And we all have seen it. We all felt it, I'm sure. I mean, I don't want to speak for everyone, but uh, once you have something taken away for so long, you miss it, you know? Um, With that in mind, I'm specifically talking about brick and mortar buildings. I'm talking about, like, I collect CDs. We all collect books. Do you guys think that um, at some point there's going to be a resurgence of stuff that we all grew up with, such as, like, malls coming back maybe the internet i'm not saying it's gonna go away or the metaverse wherever's next but do you guys think that there's gonna be a part or a decade in our near future where it's just like let's get back to the 90s grady you go first sir (laughs) well i mean 90s nostalgia is already all over the place i i see some some ugly chunky colors out there uh so (laughs) Yeah, I and I see fanny packs being worn both ironically and non-ironically. So I would I would suggest they're back. Erica. You know, I'm going to say something really cheesy uh, as as or more like kind of ridiculously academic just that I've been in a little battle with my university, right? They let me do remote, they let me and they pulled back kind of at the mercy of your chair and it's kind of coming to the end of the battle in which it's like a final so final battle. Um, and so they value face-to-face, right? They think that you need to be face-to-face to have an authentic education and that, you know, I'm not really doing my job if I'm not there, right? And 
through, I would have said the same thing 10 years ago until my life kind of changed. And so I have discovered why this is valuable. It allows me to be with my home and my, with my partner. Right. Um, I've also found that, you know, burning my syllabus to the ground and rewriting it as I was starting to read different genres again, besides literary, um, which I'd increasingly found so fucking boring and you can take the f-bomb up out if that's that's not a thing you can have so um no, and I, say fuck that, I feel really <laughs> yay fuck yeah um and i feel really you know like i'm generalizing but you know as i was you know coming back to the genres that i really loved and finding that this is what i wanted to read i was also becoming an online professor so I found that there were there were good things about it, right? Like, for example, in the intro to creative writing, you're 18 and you're like, hey, kid, you're going to write a poem about your feelings and then you're going to read it in front of a bunch of strangers your age and somebody who judges you for a living. And people, you'd lose a lot of students. I would lose fewer students online. And I found a way to give them that same education. That said, I find as a non-millennial, I am very envious of them, except for the crippling debt, um, which I have like only semi-crippling debt. Um, but you guys have like a really good taste in food, for example. Um, and you also use this phrase called intentional communities. And I like that idea for all the things. I like the idea of like concentrated face-to-face -face things like conferences or, you know, educational situations with the option of living where you want to live and creating the community you want to create. So I think that's what I'd like to see. Although there is some part of me, even though it's very overweight and unhappy in various other ways in the nineties that wants to see the nineties come back. I, if I could go back to the nineties now, then I think I'd be very happy. So. <laughs> and would you like to jump in? Yeah. Um, I don't know that I would want the 90s per se to come back, but <laughs> it doesn't have to be the 90s. What you experience, it could just be like, yeah, I know. Like, theme. okay. I, I do think that there will be a resurgence of malls and movies and the kids wanting to hang out again at the malls. Moms and dads take them and drop them off for the day and they go to the movie and the food court and they hang out face to face because a lot of the kids right now, the lockdown was hell on them. I have a 13 year old and I watched him go through fifth grade to eighth grade through that. And a lot was lost. A lot of what he would learn um, from his friends and whatnot, especially at that transitional phase, was lost. So when they all went back to school, luckily they were all sort of in that same developmental transitional stage and they were all sort of on the same level, but not at the level that they should have been going to middle school from fifth grade because they lost that. I, I do think that there will be a lot more of that. I, I think the moms and dads and anyone that had to go through that, they see the importance of you need to be out there. You need to have some sort of social interaction. You may not necessarily need to go to school every day. You can do 
remote school. You can work from home. You can do all of these great new things that we have now. I work at home. I love it. I would not trade it for anything. Um, I'm spoiled. I don't like to be out in the world. I don't like to be in the cold. I don't like the rain. You know, I could give you a whole list. But for my kid, there's definitely something to be lost there that needs to come back. He needs the one-on-one. He needs time with his friends. He needs that little bit of space and he needs to see what the world out there is like. I've been out there. I know what it's like, but I do think it's going to come back now. And I also think, including me, I did gain a more of an appreciation for the smaller stores, for the things like the movies and the malls and the restaurants and being able to go out and sit down and eat rather than having to order, you know, Grubhub and DoorDash and all of that. There was definitely a loss there because not having that when you've been taking it for granted for so long There's a loss. And, you know, I think it all comes back to that's how we like to escape, unwind, relax, hang out with friends. Like that's your that's your personal time to get away from your life, to get away from your work schedule and your home and your kids and the the laundry and the dishes and the meals that never end. Have you noticed how much you had to cook during the pandemic? It was never ending. You were cooking, you were doing dishes, and you were cooking, you were doing dishes. It was breakfast, lunch, dinner, like over and over. When does it end? But, you know, now that we can go back out, hey, we can go out and sit down and eat now. So, yeah, I I do think it's going to come back a lot because people recognize that that was a loss. Yeah. That's me. No, that's great. I didn't want to interrupt. It sounded like there was a, a little afterward there. Um, I could go on. I... <laughs> you, you raised some good points, Brennan. I want to save you for last because my son was born uh, November 2019. And um, so he he was too young to really, you know, do anything. But he was at the point uh, two years ago or a year ago. I can't remember. Um <laughs> Time all blends together, but uh, there was a point when socializing was a little bit off, and uh, he he kind of like it made me think how when I was growing up that we all would go outside and hang out. Sure, we play video games and stuff, but that's that's super important. Like what we're doing now, video chat, it is great. It is an awesome way to read each other's body language, but it's not the best thing to do. It's like in person at at, at conventions that's that's the best you get to feel each other's um energy and uh sure we kind of can hear but um there's no replacing that interaction the face-to-face interaction that's kind of how i feel about with like you know physical books or physical tangible anything um that's all i got to say on that brennan how about you sir yeah, I mean, you, you kind of picked up the thread, but I think a lot of what Candace had to say just reminded me the notion of like, don't know what you got till it's gone. Um, and I, I do, I don't think it's out of the question at all to see almost kind of like a whiplash response to, you know, we were kind of getting used to being able to access all these things from home and, you know, order whatever you want from Amazon. And of course, we can still do that. But the fact that it got taken away from us for a certain amount of time, you know, may trigger that kind of, well, you know, let's, let's bring malls back. Let's see what's out there. Um, 
I mean, as far as, you know, resurgences and things like that, uh, in regards to nostalgia, I'm a big believer in the fact that most of those, you know, positive memories, whether it be clothing or color schemes or whatever, uh, you know, we, we like them because we associate them with a time that we had more freedom. Um, I mean, before we got on this call, I was paying my mortgage and paying my gas bill. And I'll tell you right now, I would wear Jinko jeans all day long if I could get out of paying those things. Um, it's, you know, we, we look fondly back at just having that kind of freedom and, and all that stuff. And honestly, I kind of associate physical media with that and, you know, kind of the diminishing uh, ability to even to to even like own that stuff like that. Like I remember last year I had a band put uh, uh, an album out and I went to buy the CD and I, I thought you couldn't even buy it. Like they, they did not even release it on CD. And that's, that's wild to me. Like, yeah, you can stream it, but for somebody like me, who's, you know, has this like kind of lingering sense of paranoia. Well, what if that company goes under, then I can't listen to that album anymore. What if, uh, you know, what, what if, what if Amazon sinks, then what, what happens to all those like $3 books that I bought? Um, and frankly, that fear only gets kind of like compounded by the streaming services you see that are, you know, taking shows that were never released in any physical form off of their platforms. And they just, they, they only exist in limbo now. Um, and for, for that, you know, I, I am thankful for my big collection of physical books that, uh, a website can't go under and you know those are going to disappear off my shelves or anything like that and and i kind of i kind of do hope that things like that lead to a little bit of a resurgence in physical media uh because there's just you know the ebooks are great they really are and i am if, if somebody wants to buy one of my ebooks i am happy if they you know go ahead and download that but there's just there's no replacement for holding a physical book in your hands you know, this is something, obviously, uh, in academia and just in the book world, we talk a lot about. And I think, first of all, nostalgia is kind of what we're talking about. And it's really, really powerful. And there are, you know, like, I'll see a trapper keeper in a thrift store. And I'm like, oh, my God, a trapper keeper. It's just a bunch of plastic where I kept my math homework, which I hated. So, um but what I can say is that to me, it's the art that matters, not the medium, and that every single generation sort of values a different thing. And then they have this nostalgia of a thing in itself before. I've kind of, what I've decided to do is I buy hardbacks as fetish objects because they're pretty and lovely. And I also like to buy like my friends who, you know, they put a new book out and it's beautiful, right? And I like to have beautiful hardbacks on the shelf. But otherwise, I do love the ebook and because I travel a lot, right? And so, you know, I can I can just access it. And all, honestly, I also like to, you know, fall asleep sideways in bed. And then also, I move a lot and I am an academic and a writer and I just can't any buy any more fucking books. I'm going to die. Like, I'll never move again. Like, I may have to die here, you know, finally. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I think a lot about this. And it's a lot of our discussion, like I said, in the book world in general. But I think it's the art that matters. I really do. I think that's 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 what matters the most. Um, MySpace lost twelve years of uh, of, of storage, and um, so like if you had I, at the time, I had some music on there that I made, and I'll just leave it at that. 
I don't want some random person asking me what I have. There's no proof of it because it's all lost. I didn't save it back then at the time. Um, so I'm just thinking like Brennan was talking about Amazon going down. Someone might hear that and laugh about it. Well, guess what? Uh, Blockbuster was thought of as being something as the Titanic. It's unsinkable. Well, guess what? Them, Circuit City, a bunch of other places, Toys R Us. Like Toys R Us is still kind of here, but like things come and go. So you're right about that. Um, and it is all about the art. Uh, and as far as reading, I haven't been able to read a physical book in its entirety for almost a year and a half now. I've get, I'm getting through audiobooks. I'm getting through digital books by vo- uh, speech to text. Um, I don't know why that is. I'm trying. Uh, I, I don't, it's maybe the ADHD. I'm not sure. But I bring that up because uh, who, who the fuck knows what like all this oversaturation of data does to us. I don't know. I'm not smart enough to know the answer to that. And that's a great segue to get back into how to sell your house. No, no, I was going to say something that I think it came up in that a little bit, which is that, you know, the pandemic made us sort of uh, uh, limited us in a way we, we traded geographic freedom for um, temporal freedom. You know, suddenly our schedules were wide open. We didn't have to show up at work at 9am we we could like sit there and binge watch my so-called life or whatever show it was that was your like comfort space um but i think we all felt a lack you know and and ultimately you need both you need that that freedom of time and i think a lot of people have like candace you were saying that a minute ago you've sort of felt like you clawed that back a little by by working virtually but we also need that freedom of of going places, of see, of of putting ourselves in new environments. And and I think you were saying also, you know, you've seen your kid how and 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 you know, Patrick, you were saying the same thing. You know, your kids don't get that same kind of interaction, you know, as going to a new place and having to deal with it and and new people. So it's always weird to me how fragile and delicate we are. Um, we need so much stuff. We need our time we need to be able to go anywhere we need all this freedom we need all these 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 lack of limits or else we live sort of weird truncated bonsai kind of lives absolutely and i'll tell you what um i talked about making a podcast with one of my best friends uh, he listens to these so shout out to you mason um but seriously like uh we started in 2020 and Brandon and I have talked about it. Like we keep have kept our minds focused and we talk every day and we've gone through a lot like everyone has. And if we didn't have the podcast and all these people like you guys to talk to and keep our minds occupied, occupied. Um, I don't know. It, I, I don't know how things would have turned out. We would have been alive and fine, but uh, it really was a form of escapism um, for us. So couldn't have done that without, you know, the modern technology. Brennan, I I feel like you got something to say. I do not. Go ahead, Ramble. <laughs> oh, I misread you. <laughs> That's all I had. But, you know, it's interesting. I'm curious if people think, because I feel like it took several years post 9-11 to sort of be like, oh, 9-11's about zombies, you know, in horror. Like, there's a lot of zombies. It took a while. But, like, does anyone see any glimmerings of post-pandemic 
trends in horror. I I don't, but I'm not, not maybe not be looking at it right. Not not yet. Besides movies where there's not enough extras in the background. No, I don't know that we're I don't know that we're removed enough from it yet. Whereas, you know, 9-11 is, is kind of a pinpointable place in time. You can't say, well, you know, the, the pandemic started on March 13th, 2020, and it ended on, because in some people's minds, it ended four months later. In some people's <laughs> minds, it ended like a week later, and they were sick of being home with their kids. Uh, and, you know, there's others that, you know, it's, it's still going on, that cases are, you know, uptick in an area, they're still wearing, you know, masks out to the, the grocery store and everything. I do think, in my opinion, I, I do think it'll be a while before we start to see uh, contagion things make it big. Not that people won't do it, but before it you know, becomes kind of a mainstream big movie, you know, this is the book of uh, 2024 or whatever, and it's based around, you know, a pandemic or, you know, a plague or anything like that. I just nobody wants to not enough people want to invest in that i don't think um but hey maybe i'm wrong well i also wonder if horror already leans into that isolation a restricted location uh, a feeling of you know feelings of paranoia and, and distress and panic like maybe it's impossible to see it in horror because horror is already there i don't know I like yeah. the idea, though. I think the thing about 9-11, right, is that it affected all of us culturally, regardless of our opinions on it, but it, it, it affected people very centrally, physically, whereas the pandemic really did affect all of us physically and culturally. I I love the idea of, of uh, zombies as a sort of um, aftershock metaphor for that experience. I will say that what I'm hearing and I'm experiencing a lot is the Internet as a monster, the Internet as mm. a vehicle for outrage because we have this right uh section 230 that's come up to the supreme court right and it was designed in 1996 to deal with the internet and now it can't deal with the internet and they don't know what to do with it and i'm hearing from a lot of people that they just feel that there's this space that was created in people's heads and then was let loose during the pandemic that now that people don't necessarily have to be at home is even somehow worse. Like, it's just this, like, you know, again, the, you know, Twitter is an outrage machine and people getting angrier and even angrier than they were during the pandemic. So I don't know, maybe, maybe that's going to be part of the new, there'll be a big foot. That's a metaphor for internet outrage. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. And then you get to wonder what the, the social, uh, social, sociologically, I can't talk. Um, to like upcoming or future generations, which would create probably a new type of far. Um, so I, unless anyone wants to talk about anything else with this, I really would love to get back to uh, how to sell a haunted house. Mm -hmm. Um, Brennan, start with you. What are your thoughts on the book? Good. <laughs> don't say it's bad i'm right good job, here Brady. Um, no no i i loved it i i absolutely loved it for me it's it's up there with um you know it's my best friend's exorcism is such a is such a classic and you know that's okay. that, I, I have to imagine that that's what you hear a lot as far as you know uh your books that really resonated with people and 
I, I do think that How to Sell a Haunted House is up, up there with your strongest. And actually, I'm kind of surprised to hear that, you know, you um, and was it your agent or your editor? Said editor that, yeah. Yeah. Said that, you know, oh, well, we'll give it a shot. Um, because I thought and, you know, we're I don't want to go too far into this because we talked about this on your solo episode, but just the kind of metaphors and underlying themes that exist with grief and how different people process it differently. Um, I mean, it's a creepy, weird, off the walls, bonkers, batshit book, but at the same time, it just has so much like depth to it. There's, there, there's, you know, there's these serious layers, but there's also this, Oh my God, that was wild uh, aspect to it that, you know, gives it that little, that flavor of, you know, a little bit of something for everybody. Um, and I'm glad to hear that it's, you know, doing as well as we kind of hoped it, it would when uh, we talked about it a few months ago. Oh, thanks. Yeah, well, it's funny. This was going to be my pandemic book. I mean, I was writing it in 2020 and 2021. So I really it was, you know, there are drafts where it's all masks and social distancing and all that stuff. And uh, sort of by the time the book was was wrapping up, it was like, well, that just seems a lot less urgent. Uh, it was, I don't know. I don't know if anyone else dealt with, uh, I don't know, Erica, you had something you were working on that you're like, Oh, pandemic's in here. And eh, maybe not. Oh, you mean for me? Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I set white horse in 2016 for a variety of reasons with a new one. I've set sort of after, right. Because, and I think like one thing I can say that I'm definitely seeing is people are like, I kind of don't want to deal with this. And what's kind of interesting is obviously, you know, the pandemic is relevant to us culturally, but in some ways you're saying, boy, it just somehow seemed less relevant. That's interesting because, yeah, somehow you know, everyone wearing masks and social distancing didn't seem to be at the heart of your book. And so you were like, it really actually is peripheral. I'm going to take it out. Yeah, it's weird. All that stuff just felt like it was just going to date it. Like, uh, like Brendan, I think you said ginkgo jeans, which, uh, boy, that's a blast from the past. Yeah, I'll throw, I was I was reading a book and I won't name it because I didn't I, I didn't finish it. I couldn't. And it was um, it, it just had a lot of 2020 ish details thrown in, you know, everybody making sure they have their mask and, you know, getting stopped if they don't put it on before they go in a store. And, you know, uh, he threw, you know, three vials of hand sanitizer in his pocket as he went out <laughs> the door. And it was just so. I, I don't want to say over the top because it was realistic, but at the same time, unnecessary. And maybe it became integral to the plot. I don't know because I couldn't finish it. Um, and I'm not, so I don't, I, I don't, you know, quit a lot of books midway, but it was just distracting almost. Um, right. And, and well, it you... made me say that I'm not, you know, I wouldn't want to do that in my own work. Sorry, Grady, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you know, it's interesting. People talk about how the 1918 flu pandemic, you know, there was that big thing going around during this recent pandemic about, oh, it left no traces. There was no great art from the flu pandemic. And I'm like, oh, maybe history's repeating itself. Although at the same time, I mean, the 1918 flu pandemic, that was the year World War I ended. And World War One, I, I mean, really shaped everything in horror for the 20th century you know i mean we're we're just getting out of its shadow now 
So, I mean, I always feel like World War One plus the pandemic at the end had a lot to do with each other. Hmm. Yeah, That'd that's what I said when I when I first started thinking about how this would shape literature. I couldn't stop thinking about God in my brain I, is, is truly fried at this point in time. The novel that takes place are right around that time, and then it's also a really well known film. It's British. Oh God, it's mainly about a love affair, and it goes wrong because someone sees somebody in a library, and God, why brain why? But um, yeah, the pandemic is sort of like, or the you know what's happening then, the Spanish flu, right? It's sort of like at the end of it, it's like this feeling of like relief and release and everyone's excited to be alive. But then, of course, then the wars are going on. So and so everyone's called to war. So, yeah. yeah, which I mean, we're doing in reverse, right? I mean, there's now a land, another land war in Europe. So, um, yeah, but yeah, but I mean, like, so I think, you know, it's I, I don't know if anyone's read Scott Poole wrote a book called Wasteland about World War One and how it sort of shaped our and it is a book I have, I like Scott a lot and I like his books, but it is a book I avoided reading because I was just like, oh, World War One. I. I can't think of anything more boring than like guys with BO and trenches getting gassed. And um, it's really one of the few books I've ever read that's that's really changed how I thought about things. Erica, you read it? No, I was going to say, I know oh. I've read it though. I got to put it on my. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. You were, you were giving that definite nod that I'm like, oh, the, the I've read it not. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's really, it's really incredible. Um, and, uh, really blew my mind, but just, just how much, I mean, why wouldn't it, I mean, the, the widespread, why wouldn't it change everything, uh, and how we look at horror and, and, and bringing in new forms of horror. Um, and, and so I think, you know, and I think Brennan, you said this is that it's still too early to know, but, um, I'm excited to see where it goes. Like, I mean, yes, hundreds of thousands of people are dead. That sucks. Nothing good about a pandemic. But every time something happens, it sort of changes, shifts the paradigm. I'm always fascinated to see how it plays out, especially in my own little weird lagoon of horror, or our, our lagoon of horror. It's worth pointing out, too, that uh, J.R. Tolkien was in World War One, and uh, he... yeah. He obviously wrote a lot based on that experience and and I denied mean, it to the to his dying breath. This has nothing to do with the war, says the man writing about a giant war who was in a war. But yeah. Well, it's like yeah. Stephen King saying the shining has nothing to do with his alcoholism for years. And now he looks back and he's like, Yeah, I don't know why I said that in those interviews. I think I was in a lot of denial. <laughs> I was drunk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or on Coke. But I bring it up because uh, J.R. Tolkien, I don't know how long. It could be a few more centuries. It could be for until we're, humans are around for, you know, whenever. Um, but he's got this this foothold on us like Shakespeare. He He defined the 20th century, which obviously creeps into the 21st century so that's all i had to say about that it kind of um it, it makes me it personally makes me think about literature in a whole different way um because i like talking about this with my non-book friends that the fiction is really important um that it usually talks about stuff before those things actually happen which makes me wonder do they affect reality which i'm sure they do like you know jules verne is talking about deep sea navigation and space travel um what a hundred and something years before those things happen 
uh, it, there's plenty of examples, but it's just it, it's really fascinating. It's really interesting. Um, well, I don't think you could ever say it's predictive, but it's often interesting in retrospect how much they're linked together. Yeah. I mean, one thing I was thinking about a lot is how much economic anxiety and and haunted house and ghost stories go together. I mean, you look at the big boom in ghost stories and spiritualism in the latter half of the 19th century, which was, you know, uh, financial crises up the wazoo. I mean, mm. banks failing, panics and all this. And also the growth of suburbs, which were first sort of appearing and growing. And then and then the next big boom in ghost stories really was the 70s, which was, you know, famously economically insecure. And you had burnt offerings and uh, the Amityville horror and all that. And then you look at the next big giant uh, economic crisis, which was uh, the subprime mortgage crisis, which sparked the recession in the mid 2000s. And you look at the fact that in October of 2000, the first paranormal reality show debuted. And, you know, by 2019, there'd been something like 115 of them appearing on the air. You know, I mean, just this explosive growth in paranormal reality TV at the same time that, you know, we were undergoing a huge economic crisis. So I always think like, is it predictive? I'm not sure it works that way. Like, do you know what I mean? I think that would be useless. But at the same time, <laughs> like, you look back and you're like, oh, they are linked, you know, like, not in any useful predictive way, but in a in a sort of expressive way. Well, this is not the entire, not entirely the same thing, but it is a ghost story. Charles Dickens, and, um, I'm not probably telling you guys anything new, but it's worth repeating. Uh, Charles Dickens wrote what his ideal um, world would be if Christmas was celebrated this way, and he was also dealing with the UK's uh, Industrial Revolution, which is Scrooge. Yeah. He's all those rich assholes, <clears throat> and because of that, because Christmas wasn't like it is today until Dickens, that's fiction that changed the world. It's it's just it's real interesting. I I, I always can't help but think like who that all of us talk to, or maybe it's one of us or a few of us. I don't know, but who who's going to be like a Charles Dickens or a Jules Verne? I don't know the answer to that or an Agatha Christie or whoever, you know, it, no one knows until much later. It's going to, it's, it's going to be one of us where we can say, oh, I knew that person, you know, well, we'll probably be dead. You're right. It's probably going to be long after we'll talk about it in hell. <laughs> wow. That was a roller coaster ride. <laughs> we started out Brady. with a Christmas carol and we wound up in hell. This is our Grady. Get used to it, motherfucker. <laughs> you say fuck here, Erica. That's good. That's that works for me. That was a callback to earlier. You know what I was, what I was going to say? This kind of comes back less to hell, um, but I will say that it always compels me. Like, why does somebody feel like whatever they're absorbing from the culture that may or may not be end up being somewhat prophetic or just telling about the culture at the time? What does make somebody want to put that on a spaceship? somebody want to talk about this in like in terms of a dying marriage or what makes somebody be like, no, I'm actually going to talk about a haunted house. And, and, and I, and I, I think you can always have your guesses, but I don't really know exactly why, but it's interesting. Well, and I think one of the nice things about horror, I mean, and one of the reasons I really like it, besides the fact that it's basically real life with, but less boring, um, is, uh, that it really literalizes metaphors. Like it lets you talk about stuff really directly and really 
entertainingly. Um, you know, okay, you're going to talk about grief, but you're also going to talk about killer puppets and dolls and all that stuff. You know, you're going to, you're going to talk about, um, uh, you know, your family and your relationship with your mother, but you're also going to talk about ghosts and demons and, and, you know, folklore coming to life and trying to rip your head off. Um, you know, it's, it, it just, it lets you really get direct in a way I feel like a lot of other genres of literature pussyfoot around. Uh, and, you know, and the pussyfooting sometimes fun. I like, I like Henry James as much as the next person, but it's really, sometimes it's really nice to just sort of like, I don't know, get, get, get big, turn it up to 11. That was the thing that made me happy to come back around. I miss the elves. I miss the dragons. I miss the spaceships. I miss the ghosts. I, I wanted that magic. I wanted that portal to another world, even if it was a darker one. But yeah, I like that idea of it being a, a much a clear, like literalization of a metaphor and that somehow it allows you to talk about it, but still have that kind of fun. So yeah, I love that. So we're coming up to an hour for sure here. Um, there's one question. I don't know if it's going to be a quick answer, so I'm just going to ask it. It's for you, Grady. Just tell me if it's uh, not going to be a quick answer, and we'll pass. Um, this is from Patrick C. Harrison III. I want to know what Grady's favorite paperback from Hell Cover is, not which book he likes the most, but what cover he likes the most. Oh, um, you know, I so sort of there's two answers to that. One is, I really love Hector Garrido's Little People cover. It's the first one I stumbled across with the Nazi leprechauns. It's just so over the top and crazy. And there's also John Bacon did the hardcover of it. And he really like, it's like a, a white cover with a little foot vanishing off the side. And I'm like, who write, who reads a book about Nazi leprechauns? Is like, that's what I'm going to do. Like Hector Garrido puts his inner child right there front and center um but also um there is a cover that i have hanging over or ha was hanging i had it enlarged for an event and, and just hang out hung on to it um i i know tom monteleone is a real pain in the ass right now you um, can still have a good cover though so i'll just put that but, out there well lisa falkenstern's cover to his book night train is amazing and it's a scene oh, that doesn't appear in the book I at all i commented on that when you were first on yeah I asked it was that. it's right behind my desk but, but yeah. it's it's a woman on the subway in the 80s and she's reading a book and there's like a giant like monster coming through the window of the subway behind her and you know lisa falkenstern is really such a talent like it's one of those funny will and i who did paper acts from hell were like if you don't know who a cover artist is it's probably lisa falkenstern like she was just so prolific and her work was always really highly rendered very detailed very um very very i wouldn't say photo reference but very just solid it, it had a real sense of volume and depth to it that some covers like were very graphic and fun but hers always felt like it existed in three-dimensional space and she's still i've seen some of her recent work and like you still got it. And a lot of artists, as they get older, their manual control gets a little wonky. Their eyesight gets a little wonky. Lisa's still knocking it out of the park. And so, and there's something about someone reading on the subway, oblivious to a monster about to eat them, that just says everything that I love about New York. Yeah. 
Okay, no one's got anything to say to that. Yeah, uh, New York is its own weird place, that's for sure. Uh, so I'm, we're going to... What? I just knew that was going to be the end of the sentence, which was, which is everything I knew about, I love about New York. I knew it, like, in my books. <laughs> so we're going to wind down to uh, currently reading, start with uh, you, Erica, and then Grady. Yeah, I just, um, Matt Cassidy, who wrote Mary, which I loved, he asked me to blurb um, nestlings and it is Ooh. outstanding oh, freaking standing i mean people are gonna just go nuts for this um and i know it's a bit of stride art you know the the genre everyone's talking about here but my friend bl blanchard is a speculative science fiction anishinaabe writer and god she's a genius i'm uh she her first book was peacekeeper and she's also asked me to blurb for a second which is called mother and they're nice. both phenomenal so yeah very cool Grady, what are you currently reading? Um, so there's three books that I've got that I need to start reading. Um, currently reading, I'm reading stuff for work. But um, Stephen's Don't Fear the Reaper, which I haven't started yet. Uh, I got my copy sitting here. I'm really dying to dig into it. Uh, Danielle Trussoni's Puzzle Master, uh, which is, a, she's gone thriller. Uh, she sort of left horror behind and gone thriller, but like I'm I'm a Wordle fan, and it's basically like uh, Silence of the Wordles, uh, and so like I'm I'm all in. Um, and then uh, um, Whale Fall mm. it, by Daniel Krause, mm -hmm. um, who did Rotters and a bunch of other really reprehensible horror novels. Um, it's <laughs> his. It's a short book, but it's a real time account of a scuba diver who gets swallowed by a whale and has to get out before his air runs out in 90 minutes. And like those three, I'm like, man, I, I get to start reading for fun on Friday of this week. And I'm so looking forward to it. We had him on, we talked about that. And that sounded so damn cool. He's talking yeah. about how he talked to special or, or like uh not specialists, um, experts. That was a hard word to think yeah. of. Those people. He talked about experts with all these weird questions and like it's such a cool like job being a writer to just, you know, you can you don't know where the next book's gonna take you. Um that that does sound like a really, really neat one. Blood Sugar is one of my favorites by him. It's such mm. a weird book that reminds yeah. me of a clockwork. Great cover orange. too. Yes, absolutely. Uh Candace, what are you currently reading? Um, I just got through reading a um, novel called ha Hungers, um, As Old as This Land. It is a new novel by Zach R Rosenberg. And it nice. was... Oh, the Western. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so I had to read that one for a blurb. And I just finished that probably around five o'clock this afternoon. So. I bought the, uh, I got a order because he had some. Uh, it's his. amazing. So, yeah. That's cool. Really yeah. neat. Um, I'm currently reading Ronald Kelly's second book in the Dead Eye Saga. It's a zombie gunslinger. Um, right. The first book, he deals with vampires. There's other creatures in there. Second book, he's dealing with uh, werewolves. It's fun. Ron's such a fun writer. Um, doesn't have as much notori notoriety as Joe Lansdale, but he should. Um, 
due to how incredible of a writer he is. Uh, and Fear 2 will be coming out eventually. I know he's going to be working on that. So I know there's listeners that like the first one. He missed it when he announced that Fear 2 will be happening. Brennan, what are you currently reading? Uh, I just wrapped up this afternoon. I was reading Saculina by Philip Fricasse. Um, short little novella. Uh, it's uh, ocean horror. It's, I don't know, it's almost like a creature feature, but it's got some cosmic vibes to it. And it, it's, it makes your skin crawl. He, he's got some ideas in there that you're, ugh, you, gotta, you, you almost want to close it, but then you don't. And you just, you know, you deal with it and you suck it up and you get to the end. Uh, I'm also reading American Cannibal, which is edited by Rebecca Rowland and features our very own Candace Nola among a whole bunch of other people. I just finished reading Owl Going Back's um, entry about Wendigos today. Um, And it's it's really cool so far, but it's also another one. I, I really can't do more than one story a day because... It's gross. <laughs> Where can Candace, you yours, yours notwithstanding, which was ex- extremely gross. So thanks. <laughs> You're very welcome. Yep. <laughs> uh, Grady, where can people follow you? Oh, just gradyhendricks.com. That's all my links to my social junk and things are, are there. Perfect. Um, Erica, where can people follow you? Yeah, actually, similarly, it's Erica, E-R-I-K-A-T-W-U-R-T-H dot com. And same, all my links, my socials are there where you can also scream at me on Twitter. (laughs) Candice, where can people follow you? You can find me at Uncomfortably Dark. It's my website. I'm there. (laughs) Your turn, Brennan. Brennan LaFaro.com, Brennan LaFaro on socials. BrennanLafaro.substack.com for mailing list stuff, which is probably the most active thing I'm on. If you want to follow the show, just look look up Dead Headspace. Uh, if you want to follow me, go on Twitter, PR McDonough. Um, and we're at final thoughts. I'll start with you this time, Grady. Do you have any final thoughts? I, you know, it's funny. I always when someone asks about final thoughts, I think I always think of the Jerry Springer show. Um, with Jerry's final thought. Um, no, and I don't, I, I don't, I mean, um, any thought could be your last thought. It's, I don't like to dwell on it. A plane could crash into my building. My ceiling could collapse. The structural supports could give out. So yeah, I just don't want to dwell. You have any second to final thought, second to last final thoughts. That's not how you say it. Okay. Erica, final thoughts. <laughs> I don't know if I can beat that, but, and it's actually been kind of a relief to not talk about indigenous anything. And this is what I love about um, horror is that people are cool with it, but they're not also like be an authentic Indian. Are you, are you? Um, so that's nice too, but. It's not all you talk about all the time. Oh God. And so. It's um, a joke, by the way, <laughs> to you, to whoever's listening. All right. Um, but yeah, if you, if, here's what I'll say. I do love it when people Google my name and then a BuzzFeed and stuff like that, because one of the big things in my life has been to make sure to uplift other indigenous voices so that it's not just one guy. And I feel like that's really happened. And that's so good for us. And there are people who just don't want that to be the case. Um, and I really don't like them. <laughs> so I, I like, of course, my fiction is my first love, but you know, if you really want to see more about what's really happening in indigenous fiction, and they're kind of outdated now, but um, please do do that. Right on. Uh, Candace. 
Final thoughts. Um, not at the moment. This has been great. Thanks for inviting me on and getting to talk with Erica and Grady both because, you know, it's awesome. For his final thoughts, I mean, I don't know. I hope my, my plane doesn't crash into my building or anything right at this moment. That would suck. <laughs> um, my final thoughts are it's been fun talking to you guys. Uh, I, I can't believe that we got to talk to you both so soon after we had you on for the first time. So thank you very much. And Candace, thank you. Brennan, thank you, sir, for being here. Um, your turn. <laughs> a better segue. Uh, big, big thank you to Erica and Grady for both coming back so soon. And uh, we hope you'll come back again, even if it's only just to hear Patrick's roller coaster sentences. They never get old, I promise you. Um, <laughs> they make me laugh, too. I'm so I, bad I, at I words. I will say, I don't think that Grady comparing uh, a post-pandemic um, book event to a book orgy i don't think that got enough attention so that's what i'd like to leave us with yes. book orgy is that going to be the preview just him saying book orgy. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> putting books together banging books together gonna get an email from grady saying please take that out <laughs> okay um enough with the jokes this is not comedy hour brennan Next episode is 191 with Caitlin Marceau. And just a reminder, we're doing a giveaway. Check out our Twitter. Where is that? Deadhead Space. Just look it up. Um, and you got a chance to win a Blackness Absolutes. And also, you get a chance to win her other book through uh, Darklit Press. This is where we talk things out. Thank you, sir. Mm. As always, you have made many choices in podcasts. Thank you for picking up. Mm.